0: Welcome to Salem, the podcast.
1: We are your hosts and favorite Salem tour guides.
0: My name is Sarah Black.
1: And I'm Jeffrey Lilly.
0: And today we are talking about a Mr. Nathaniel Hawthorne, one of America's greatest writers, producing works such as The Scarlet Letter and The House of Seven Gables. And he was also a born and raised Salemite.
1: The infamous Nathaniel Hawthorne.
0: Our favorite historic goth man. Mm. Oh, remember we threw him in that uh that list of samuel mcintyre oh oh, from salem yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. and nathaniel hawthorne which one would you marry date date
1: oh we should do the the thing
0: the f marrying kill
1: (laughs) (laughs) wait who who are we doing derby mcintyre and hawthorne yeah uh marry derby
0: I was thinking the same thing. Because
1: cause you get the money. Yep. Right?
0: And that's between Samuel McIntyre and Hawthorne. I bet you would screw Hawthorne and kill McIntyre.
1: Probably.
0: Although, you got to make sure you don't kill McIntyre before he helps build the Derby Mansion. Yeah. Then you don't get that. It's
1: like, where where in their histories are they? Yeah. Is they 'Cause going to have different... different uh, very true yeah
0: assets they,
1: right like <laughs> the things that you value them for yeah and the, the way you make your decision like sure. if, if you got a you know a 20 year old elias derby you're like at yeah, whatever like he's got some money but it's probably no big deal uh, right the
0: beautiful eyes
1: mm. the heterochromia mm-hmm. there is that there is that well, there's also Hoth...
0: a <laughs> i was gonna make a really bad joke
1: what were you gonna say I was going to say there's also Hawthorne's mustache.
0: Oh, that's good. Like me a mustache once in a while.
1: His was like chonky.
0: He had a certain look to him. Yeah, yeah. Slightly foreboding. Wild. Yes. Unhinged, maybe.
1: I Some might call his writings unhinged. I think some people did not unhinged, but I, I, I think I saw a quote the, uh they're like yeah dude's got issues <laughs> the, the review was like yeah this guy needs to talk to someone a
0: little outside of the norm for that time period yeah
1: yeah okay uh tour time sarah do you have do you have tour time that involves uh not sleeping with historical figures
0: i think i do oh what'd you got i got a really good tour time this week I had a very special guest on tour. I had a, I I should say, I had a lot of great guests. Met a lot of Patreon listeners. Shout out to all of them.
1: Yeah, I had like four or five.
0: Yeah, I had a whole bachelorette party at one point. Like that was one of her main goals was to come on the tour for her bachelorette experience. I know you love them. We had so much fun. I like putting the bride on trial. Mm, That's pretty good. Uh Uh-huh. But uh, the special guest starred in one of our favorite movies, Hocus Pocus. What? Yes, I indeed had a guest from Hocus Pocus. And now anyone who's a big fan of the show will remember who this character is. Uh, it's the scene, I think it's shortly after the old town hall party scene mm-hmm. and the kids run up to a Salem police officer. Uh-huh. It's like I can genuinely recite it word by word, like, oh, officer, officer he's like what seems to be the problem here and they tell him that they literally brought the witches back from the dead and he pulls max off to the. <laughs> danny's like and he's a virgin and he pulls max off to the side is like are you a virgin and Max's like yeah he's like really he's like look i'll get it tattooed on my forehead which is a really funny iconic scene that anyone who loves the movie recognizes and i had that fake police officer, because he ended up not being a police officer. He was officer. not a police officer. Yeah, he was dressed up as a police officer. So his name is Michael McGrady, and he's still acting. He's doing a show down on the Cape right now for Netflix. Oh, cool! So he thought he'd pop up to Salem, his,
1: his old stomping grounds. Yeah. Was, well, so so did you? Add, was he here?
0: No. So I had seen the. So I, I wanted to brush up on the scene uh-huh. before I took uh-huh. him on tour. And I made it a point to like look real close, like, is this actually Salem? I and had
1: heard that that scene was Salem, but every time I look at it, I'm like, I don't think it is. I don't
0: think it is. And I ask everyone who comes on tour, yeah. like, is this your first time to Salem? And I chatted with him, and if I recall correctly, he said it is his first time to Salem. So wow. I don't think he was ever... Here for the movie, which makes sense. Like, who are they going to fly out to be in Salem for scenes? Right, like, they're not right. going to.
1: There's probably only like a dozen. Yeah, you know, like you have like four of the main cast, right? And then you know a bunch of extras.
0: So it was really cool, though. It was such an honor to meet him. And uh, Bora Brian mm-hmm, mm-hmm. was ho- playing host oh, very as nice. him and his wife were in town. So I got Bora and. Michael McGrady. And so it was just very fun. I although I tried to, so I asked at the beginning if I could announce it to the group Mm -hmm. and he's like, Oh yeah, that's cool. Totally fine. And so I thought it would be funny to announce it in a way that like people who have seen the movie would totally get it and be like, Oh no way. So we're in front of the old town hall and I'm like, and today we have a very special guest with us on tour. Someone that, Knows about Hocus Pocus very well. Let's see if he remembers the line. And then I spewed out one of the lines from the scene. And it was the one, I was like, what's so funny, Eddie? And it's the the blonde girlfriend that comes out and he's like, huh, nothing. Just a bunch of kids pulling my chain. Thought I was a real cop. And it was just but he didn't remember. He didn't, re- he didn't remember the line. <laughs> he was which third, I totally understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I forgot. Like once actors, like they their stuff they might watch their stuff, but it's not like they're watching it like we watch it. Mm-hmm. So he probably doesn't remember. He definitely didn't remember. And then there I am.
1: Embarrassing the shit out of Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> so oh. it
0: was funny. But it was fun. It was pleasure to meet him. So shout out to Michael McGrady.
1: Not a real cop.
0: Not a real cop. Not in Salem. Not in Salem.
1: I got a question for you. Okay. I was asked this last night and I meant to go and and, and look and I totally forgot. You know the scene in the cemetery in Marblehead? Yes. There's that church steeple. Like just as he like enters or like just comes around the woods, there's like a little church thing. Uh Uh-huh. And I was asked last night, and uh, where is that? And I was like, Oh, it's at the cemetery marble hood. And the girl was like, no, no, I went and it's not there. And, it's not there. and I was like, uh, I was, I, I didn't know. I, I didn't have the answer.
0: I mean, maybe they added it in. I said, maybe I,
1: it, it could have been torn down the past 30 years. They could have added it in. It could have been like, a, you know how they do like the, the, they'll put like a little church steeple and then it looks like a big church. Perspective. In perspective. Thank you. Um, because she was all, uh, she was very excited about the Hocus Pocus. She was very sad when I told her the dance scene was not filmed there. She's like, I came to Salem. I saw the spots. I did all the things. Da, da, da. And I was like, yeah, sorry to ruin your night. <laughs> it's so much fun, though. It is. and and Setting the record straight. I, I just set the record straight several times for, for this group.
0: Most of my groups don't seem too surprised by
1: it. No, no. I think once you like tell them, they're like, oh, yeah, that's obvious. Yeah. Um. But, no, I had to set the record straight. Uh, the Clue House, they thought it was the Clue. they take another tour. The Hocus Pocus, they'd heard that, and I was like, oh, my goodness. Oh, and, oh, <laughs> I had a listener uh, on tour and, and last night. Last night? Yeah. So, uh, who... I met at the market on Saturday. Mm-hmm. She recognized my voice and was like, uh. "Oh, are you Jeffrey?" And I, that was really cool. And then they took my tour last night. Um, but she was wearing the Tunnel Hunter shirt.
0: Nice and solid,
1: right? And I was like, "Did you find any?" She's like, "No," ah. but I heard another tour talking about them, and I had to tell my boyfriend that, mm-hmm. like, what was going on, why it was a big deal, and how it wasn't true, and I was like,
0: <laughs> "I had someone in the back of my tour the other day just casually drop the line." hey, I heard this yellow line's like 15 miles long. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's so great. I love you guys. You're the best.
1: Yeah, it's pretty great. But no, so I was setting the record straight a lot. But then she asked, she, she's like, okay, so you know, like all this stuff. And I was like, I know all this stuff. And then she's like, where's this church steeple? And I was like, I don't know.
0: I. It wouldn't be surprising if they added it in or, like you said, it, it was taken down. Yeah. I do know, like, if you watch that scene, there's at least one headstone that mm-hmm. isn't real. Like, as I think
1: the one they're like initially leaning on or,
0: yeah, s-
1: jumping off of, and
0: there's like a big one in front too that's yeah, not real. Yeah.
1: So they definitely added some stuff. Um, but I was going to go back and like look at the scene. And like, I, I can, when she told me, like, I pictured it in my head, but I can't recall like specifically. And then I was going to maybe try and go down there. And be like. And like line it up. Yeah. Yeah, we can do that. And be like, was there church here?
0: We can do that when we go shoot our Hocus Pocus scene for the Patreons.
1: Like next week? Two weeks.
0: Two weeks because Jeffrey just went and got his hair cut.
1: Okay. I'm sorry. He
0: hasn't gotten the orange sweatpants. Get the orange sweatpants. We'll order those today. We will shave ice. everything else. Yes. And we will go recreate it. Yes, at least I know it's, we are
1: behind on that. Our apologies.
0: At least it's not cold, and there's leaves on the trees. So yeah, thank goodness. I think it'll add to the ambiance.
1: Yeah, ambiance. That's not a word.
0: Just like Carnegie.
1: Just like Carnegie.
0: So that's some great tour time this week. Yeah. We also got some Patreon shoutouts to make before we jump into the episode.
1: First on the list today, we have Marissa with a with sparkling. Sparkly Marissa.
0: Marissa. Thank you, Marissa.
1: She put the little sparkle emoji next to her name.
0: Didn't know you could put emojis by your name. Neither did I. That's cool. I
1: saw it and I was like, oh, it's like magic Marissa.
0: Magic Marissa. Thank you, magic Marissa. And a double thank you to Casey and James Schumerhorn.
1: Thank you, Casey and James. That is a mouthful. I gave that one to you. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, today we have... Megan Fry,
0: Megan Fry. Thank you, Megan.
1: appreciate all of you, our patrons. Shout out to you and you keep coming on tour and wonderful to, to meet you, to see you, to, to talk to you. I keep getting asked what's in my briefcase. Nice. So you guys are killing it there. Love it. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's really funny in front of other guests. Right. So last night she was like, so do you have any nudes in your briefcase? And I was like, yes. And the other girl on tour was like,
0: What's happening? What
1: <laughs> of? And, she, and I went sh- shoot. She's like of you, and I was like no. And she's like oh, okay. of other people. I was like <laughs> yes. She's like of men. <laughs> I like I was like no. And she's like oh. <laughs> so and it the, just
0: kept going.
1: <laughs> she was like, and then I I told the whole story, and and they loved it. Um, but it's very funny because everyone else on tour has no idea what's going on. So funny. Yeah,
0: What a great inside joke. Yeah. I think.
1: Uh, Can we not do it in October? That's just a, we're just.
0: You know those like really long nightgowns, like the oversized
1: t-shirts? Yeah. Can we
0: make some of those and then put.
1: (laughs) We can just do it on a t-shirt. Yeah. We don't don't have like a, just
0: just a regular t-shirt. I mean, can you do that? Is that, that's legal. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Oh my God. Like you can just put it on a red. Just
0: be walking. <laughs> Chest out. I. Why didn't we think of this before?
1: Out. Okay, find. Do we have a list? I don't have a list on me. Okay, this should be.
0: We'll add this to this week's to do list. Yeah. Top we, priority. Yeah. We have an. Along admin. with the peg penguin stuff. Yeah. Yeah. We we should have new merch for you guys next week. Fingers crossed. Okay. All right. And last, real quick updates before we get started. Arts Fest is coming up. If you are listening to this on its drop date, it'll be the following weekend.
1: This coming weekend, come check out all the merch, the vendors, the booths. Come to Houdini Way, see some magic performances, uh, get some good food, spend some money, shop local, see dancers, all sorts of cool stuff.
0: Genuinely the best weekend of the summer.
1: And you can even take the ferry here.
0: Yeah, because the ferry is back up and running. Another one of my favorite things to do. I do it every summer. You can take it to Boston or to Salem. Either way, it's a... Great way to travel into the city to avoid traffic. Mm-hmm. And if you don't want to, because it can get a little pricey for out-of-towners. If you don't want to do both ways, just take it one way, take it to Salem, take the train back yeah. or vice versa.
1: It's a good, good, fun little, I'm on the day like today.
0: Oh yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. The views of the coastline, oh, nothing beats it.
1: You can just sit there, look out in the water and think about shipping and Derby and Pepper. And
0: oh yes, I'm sure that's what everyone thinks about.
1: Think about Murder. Think about Martha Brailsford.
0: Aw, that's sad.
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess. I took that one down a notch. <laughs> My apologies.
0: Yeah, I do wonder if you passed Cat Island. You might.
1: Probably. Go going that way? I think you probably do.
0: I'm sure that's not part of the tour that they... It should be. Mm, yeah.
1: Okay. That's that. We're good.
0: Speaking of morbid stuff and people...
1: Nathaniel Hawthorne. So, uh, following along with our theme of the past couple weeks, uh, we've got uh, Salem's favorite author.
0: I'd say that's an accurate statement. We do have a street named after him, a hotel named after Uh him.
1: A Uh, boulevard. Yes. Probably an alley. Probably a circle. I don't know. You can have multiple.
0: Now you're just making that up. I'm
1: I'm sure there's like a Hawthorne Avenue and like a Hawthorne Street and probably a Hawthorne Road and a Hawthorne Boulevard. In Salem. I don't know. Probably. Hawthorne. There's, um, uh, where's, where's the Target?
0: That's Highland Avenue.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, but it's in the, it's in a, it's in Hawthorne Square. (laughs) She's getting her phone. Yeah, yeah. The Target in the market basket.
0: So we have a strip mall named after him is
1: what you're saying. (laughs) But yeah, uh, so Nathaniel Hawthorne uh, fits right in with our Caroline Emerton, our House of Seven Gables, uh, sort of whole, whole theme we've got going on here for a couple weeks. So let's uh, dive into his life.
0: We're going to treat him much like we have treated our previous subjects, whether it's a victim of the Salem Witch Trials, um, governor... Sir William Phipps.
1: Yes, uh, I was I was corrected. Thanks, Dad. Uh, By on, his father. <laughs> who, uh, shout out to, to my dad, uh, calls or, or texts me or messages me pretty much after every episode with some tie-in, uh, like something that uh, uh, he knew or remembered or learned or something different or whatever else, so... I was corrected.
0: Yes, so it is technically pronounced, or the, the correct positioning of the title is Governor Sir William Phipps. Yes. But just like him, just like Bridget Bishop, Rebecca Nurse, just like Arthur Miller, mm-hmm. we are going to kind of trace Nathaniel Hawthorne's life and talk about his ties to the Witch City. So Nathaniel Hawthorne was born... And I guess I should should I say Hawthorne? You know, i I had this de- so, so, I had so, this debate in in my head when I started researching how I was going to tackle this on air. As much as I want to be that person and be like, I'm just going to say Hawthorne, and then say Hawthorne when he changes it when we reach that time in the timeline, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to say Hawthorne,
1: Hawthorne the whole time,
0: Hawthorne the whole time.
1: So do do we want to talk about that? When when are we going to talk about that?
0: We can just mention it briefly here. Okay. So yes, Hawthorne does add in that W to his name. Yes. He was born Nathaniel Hathorne, H-A-T-H-O-R-N-E.
1: There is uh, the popular theory that he added it in uh, to distance himself from uh, some of his uh, relatives. (coughs) Judge Hathorne of the Salem Witch Trials. Personally, I don't buy it.
0: There's still debate in the scholarly community. Based on the research that I did, I do.
1: Okay. I think
0: he, honestly, I don't think he liked Salem very much at all. No. And he definitely had issues with his past and his ancestors and wore it as almost a badge of shame. So I'm not really that surprised that when he kind of started branching out into a more accomplished author, he decided to switch the name up just a little bit.
1: I think... Uh, just like we can see in a lot of written record, how things are spelled and written.
0: I've heard this theory.
1: Differently, that it was always Hawthorne and that everyone always said Hawthorne.
0: But like, why? When you see it written. With, with
1: an accent. If you're from England, if you come over and you have a different accent, right? And so then everyone in Salem is just continuously saying Hawthorne, right? And he leaves Salem and he goes up to Maine or he goes down to Boston and people keep look at his name and say Hathorne. Uh-huh. And he's like, oh, fuck, And then he intentionally puts the W in so that everyone starts pronouncing his name correctly.
0: Were there multiple, like, the only way that I think I would believe that is if there were multiple records that spelled it with a W in the previous generations. Because if that doesn't exist, like, why wouldn't you just put the W in, you know? Like, there's...
1: No, it was always with an A and no W.
0: Right, I know, but like if they're pronouncing it as Hawthorne, then mm-hmm. why, like, why do we not have any renditions with a W in it?
1: Well, just like you look at the the documents from the trials and some people's names. That's are, what I'm
0: saying. Is do you ever see it with a W? Oh, oh, is oh. it always if it's always spelled Hawthorne? Like, right, I don't see how you would get Hawthorne from Hawthorne.
1: Just a, a Peabody. <laughs> Can't believe we're doing this again. Peabody and Peabody, Hawthorne and Hawthorne.
0: I just don't, I, I'm skeptical of that theory.
1: I'm skeptical of the other theory.
0: But if there are instant, I will retract that decision. If there are instances in the past, mm-hmm. generations previous to him, where the spelling was with a W.
1: But the spelling wasn't standardized for like a lot of people's well, that's, names. That's
0: why it should be. Well, so, should so then see, there should be evidence of yeah, it's being spelled exactly. differently. Okay,
1: okay, okay. I but see if, what you mean.
0: If it's Hathorne all the way through, like what? That's, but. We digress. There we go. Got that out of the way. (laughs) So Nathaniel Hawthorne was born on July 4th, 1804 in Salem, Massachusetts. And I believe his house was right about where the uh, statue of him sits today in Salem on Hawthorne Boulevard, Yes, right by the Hawthorne Hotel.
1: Did you know that he was not born on Independence Day?
0: was he born the day before?
1: You no, know, he was born on July 4th.
0: Oh, it just wasn't It wasn't Independence
1: Day till after he died. Uh the first time I think it becomes uh just make sure I got it right 1870. Yeah, so 1870 Congress makes it a national holiday, it's not not till 1941 that becomes like a federally recognized holiday. Interesting. Uh, so while we're like oh he's born on the 4th yeah, but he he never celebrated his birthday as Independence Day cuz he dies in the 1860s
0: so it was just like a normal day for him but when we look back on it like especially in Salem I feel like it's kind of a big deal it's it's July 4th we do a big celebration but also at the same time Nathaniel Hawthorne's birthday which makes it even cooler if you get to go to the house of seven gables and watch the fireworks
1: have you ever done that
0: I have never done that I'm not a member so I think you have to be a member to get gain access for it to it
1: I've done it Oh, I was invited. You were invited. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure you were invited uh, yeah. by a member. Yes.
0: Um, but the fact that you are like standing next, next to, to his birthplace yeah. on his birthday, watching all these cool fireworks, is kind of cool.
1: It's It was pretty cool. But yeah, happy birthday.
0: So yes, you can actually go see his birthplace. It still stands. It was saved by Caroline Emerton mm-hmm. and moved to the grounds of the House of Seven Gables. So it is now
1: part of the House of Seven Gables complex
0: and if you listen to our previous episode our interview with David Moffat he mentioned that that happened to be the most haunted spot in the campus
1: or so they claimed
0: yes that was such a great interview that was that was wonderful if you haven't listened to it go back Dendrochronology. so much fun
1: and did you know that Mr. Hawthorne is a cancer
0: oh I forgot to do this (laughs) I always forget to do this
1: which that's that's as far as I ever go. So this is my part. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is so fitting. This is right from Google. Top of the list: cancer personality traits—sentimental, em- okay, emotional, <laughs> tender, <laughs> nostalgic, protective, creative, and moody. <laughs> this, I don't think we've ever had a more accurate description.
1: Uh tender and moot that no, that's um Yeah.
0: That's yeah. great. So yes, he is a cancer through and through. So before we move forward with his life, let's talk a little bit about where Salem was in 1804 when he was born. What world is he being born into?
1: The Great Age of Sale.
0: Like literally right in the middle of it. We are a generation past the Revolutionary War. We are in Salem's great age of sale. It is a prosperous port city.
1: Derby's been dead for five years. Uh, his house is probably torn down. or No, his
0: mansion is still there.
1: 1799. The town hall goes up in 1815. When when does the man?
0: I think it comes down in like 1813 or okay, 14. Okay. It stands for a while. So the
1: mansion is still there, but the Gardner-Pingrey house was built in 1804.
0: Ah, so it shares a birthday with Nathaniel.
1: Yes, which I always found weird because it's like this gorgeous, huge, like three-story Federalist-style building. And if you stand in front of it, old Main Street's in your way, but you could have probably seen uh, Hawthorne's house.
0: That's cool. The PEM... Or I should say the East India Marine Society, the precursor to the Peabody Essex Museum, was established just a few years prior in 1799. Uh, Samuel McIntyre was alive Mm -hmm. and well. Mm -hmm. So was Reverend William Bentley, the gentleman who we talked about.
1: Our historian. We should probably do like a whole episode on him.
0: The guy that wrote the diary. And then also Reverend Thomas Barnard, which until this day, I was getting those two mixed up. He's the one that kind of talked Colonel Leslie down at Leslie's retreat. Yes. So both of these people are existing at the same time. Also alive is future wealthy merchant and Caroline Emerton's grandfather, John Bertram, oh. who was nine years old at the time of Hawthorne's birth. Isn't it so weird to think about all these people like walking. Living
1: in, in the same, yeah.
0: Yeah, walking the streets of Salem at the same time. Like a, a little baby Hawthorne could have passed by an older Samuel McIntyre. John Bertram and Nathaniel may have like.
1: Crossed paths, yeah. It's so yeah. cool.
0: Crazy, crazy. So Nathaniel was born in, say Hawthorne, I don't like really call him Nathaniel.
1: <laughs> Nate. Nate.
0: So Hawthorne was born into an established New England family. His great 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 grandfather was William Hawthorne, the first in his line to settle in the colonies. He had originally come over from England on, from what I could tell, the first Winthrop fleet,
1: 1830. I, I think I saw somewhere on the Arabella. Yep. Self. So he's listed on the on the crew manifest uh, for that. So Hawthorne's roots go back. All the way. Yeah, pretty much as... Um, I mean, you can get the Mayflower, but, you know, uh, sans that as, as far as it goes.
0: Yeah, minus Plymouth. They first settled in Dorchester and then moved up to Salem. Mm-hmm. Now, his ancestor William went on to become a successful merchant in Salem's early trade, as well as a magistrate of Salem's highest court.
1: It's in in their blood.
0: Yep. He served as assistant to the governor and captain of the Salem Military Company. He also served in King Philip's War and was later promoted to major.
1: And then his son is the infamous Judge Hathorne, which makes him the great-great-grandfather of Nathaniel Hawthorne. And, of course, he is buried in the Charter Street Burying Point or the Charter Street Cemetery, so we can uh, go and see his, his headstone.
0: Might we also note that both of these guys were Puritans and staunch ones at that. William, in particular, was known for his very ill treatment of Quakers. He would have them whipped, banished, and imprisoned, as was customary of the day. And, of course, we know that his son takes that sternness with him into the Salem Witch Trials.
1: Ah, religious freedom.
0: So I think for most of our topics, when we really focus in on one individual person, we tend to trace their history back a little bit. But I think in Hawthorne's case in particular, it had such a direct impact on how he sees the world yeah. and his writings that it is like a super important note.
1: And then we also have his father, who we've talked about before. Ah, uh, yes, with the elephant. With the elephant. Uh, and I think we we made a joke In the elephant episode that it's kind of funny how Hawthorne writes about uh, the Gables and Puritan New England and Scarlet Letter and he clearly uses his lineage, you know, several generations back to inspire him. And yet we don't see, uh, you know, ship pirate adventures with with elephants, um, which is a little sad.
0: I am not so surprised by that because he loses his father at such a young age. I was,
1: I was going to say he was f- four.
0: Yeah, so I, I think so that might didn't. have been some of where that resistance comes yeah.
1: from. Yeah, His father dies uh, of yellow fever uh, and not even at home, far, far away. Uh, but he was also a member of the East India Marine Society. Uh, so Salem got its hooks in Hawthorne in, in all sorts of different ways. I think losing his father, you're right, probably did a definitely um, had an effect on him, and we know his mother later dies, and he sort of recounts that as some of his the, some of the darkest times in his life. So he clearly uh, had a had a significant attachment to his parents.
0: After being made a widow, his mother Elizabeth had to depend on uh, local relatives to kind of keep the family afloat. I think this is where Hawthorne really, I mean, back then, family had a very different I think a slightly different meeting than we mm-hmm. have today. Uh, you've got larger families. You are very dependent on them for survival and for prosperity.
1: I mean, the ter- it takes a village.
0: Exactly. So this is definitely one of those cases where he is just constantly surrounded by family. And I think, again, it plays into his writings later on.
1: But yeah, at the age of four, uh, they had to move out of so his, his birthplace house, uh, which is also why it's it's sort of always referred to as where he was born and not where he grew up, because I mean that's correct, but uh, we never say oh that was Nathaniel Hawthorne. So I was like that was the house he was born in. Uh, so at the age of four, he has to move with his mom and his two sisters into his uncle's house, and uh, that's where he grows up. But then in eighteen sixteen, so at the age of twelve, he moves up to Maine, um, living up there in Raymond. Raymond, Maine, um, and he recounts uh, in a letter to, uh, I believe, Longfellow at that point that those were delightful days for that part of the country was wild then, with only scattered clearings, nine-tenths of it primeval woods.
0: Ooh, it's like the main frontier, <laughs> just, but, you know, a century and a half later. Yeah,
1: but it must have just been just empty, wild woodland for... Oh,
0: you still got that up there. Yeah, but... Oh, yeah, and I know, I yeah, know back then, yeah. totally different world.
1: But that's also one of the reasons that he goes to university up there. Uh, because it is it's probably within half an hour, forty five minutes of where his family had been living and where he goes to, to college a few years later.
0: I didn't know Bodwin. Bodwin, am I saying that right? Bodwin? I think it's just Bodwin. Bodwin. Bodowin Bodwin.
1: Bodwin. Bodwin. Yeah.
0: I didn't realize that was in Maine. Yeah, I just yeah. assumed it was Boston. Uh,
1: no, 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 it, it it's it's up in Maine. Yeah, yeah. I think it's next to Lewiston.
0: Interesting. He began his studies at Bowdoin College in 1821, and I think pretty much right off the bat he knew he wanted to be a fiction writer, and it was here he made lifelong friends including Henry Wadsworth Longfellow and future president Franklin Pierce. Yeah. Imagine like just going to college with with a future president.
1: Loads of people have done it, right? I know, but it's so weird. I thought about it. And uh, obviously, every president, but then it's 40 years later, right? And you're like, wait, hold, who's running? Right? Like, I I knew that.
0: He was my beer pong player once.
1: Oh my God. That guy. So funny. Like,
0: it's weird. It's just like a. Yeah,
1: yeah. And I wonder if they knew, right? Like, Um,
0: like were they voted most likely to become president.
1: Well, have you, have you seen, uh, the West Wing? No. Okay. You should watch the West Wing. Phenomenal television. Okay. Um, there's some flashbacks of, uh, Jed Bartlett, who is the president at his time at like some private schools and some college. And they very much make it seem as though he's standout-ish, right? Like he is a sort of more independent thinker. He's fighting for the little guy, right? And obviously it's television, so it's so it's written in. But I, that always made me think, like, when you met whoever, when they were twenty, twenty one, did you have an inkling that you're like, shit, like that guy? I don't know. Always something to think about. But yeah, so he meets his, his buddy, Franklin Pierce. And of course they're going to university with Longfellow. Like, that's just, again, it's like walking around Salem. Right here here are these these people
0: and I guess we can look at it in this way who can afford to go to a university and who is going to be like what are those people going to be doing after university usually Mm -hmm. some pretty successful amazing things so I guess it's no surprise that he met at least one or two people along the way that would become equally successful.
1: Although he, he also, uh, so you're going to say he graduates in, in 19, nope, that's the wrong word.
0: 1825? Yeah.
1: And uh, he, he recounts at one point how he was like kind of a shitty student. <laughs> he was like, meh, I, would, I was I was an idle student.
0: He was a slightly rebellious individual. Yeah, yeah.
1: Got a quote. Choosing to nurse my own fancies, then dig into Greek roots. And numbered among learned Thebians.
0: I love that so much.
1: <laughs> which, which stands to uh, what uh, David told us last week, how they used to sneak alcohol in,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, in, in their lamp oils, uh, yep. and he was just like a raging alcoholic. <laughs> oh. Go, go Nate. You got to
0: nurse those mood swings somehow. Yeah, yeah. So after graduating, he returned south to his mother's home in Salem. Now, again, he knew that he wanted to be a writer in college, and he was ready to pursue this full force as soon as he graduated. So he spent the next decade or so living in, quote, relative seclusion, reading, writing, and mastering his craft.
1: It is uh, soon after he leaves that he uh, publishes his first work in 1828. Uh, And what I kind of love about this um, is it doesn't sell well. He doesn't like it. But it is self published
0: and it's published anonymously, yeah.
1: Uh, but like going back and reading it, it sort of reminded me of even you know, Nathaniel Hawthorne is one that you know, world renowned, you know. But his first bit of work, he still had to self publish, of course. Everyone's so, got to
0: start somewhere,
1: right? And it was the same it's,
0: thing with Arthur Miller, remember his yeah, first thing, exactly.
1: And it's no different than. Arthur Miller, or someone today who's like, Oh, I self published on Amazon. And I think a lot of times there's like a tone of
0: they just produced this amazing work and it was picked up and yeah, yeah. they found instant fame and instant no, it fortune. Takes, yeah, no, it takes grit, takes determination, takes time, it
1: takes moodiness.
0: <laughs> so that self publishing, uh, to, to pay for the printing, he had to dish out about $100, which roughly equates to 3200 in today's money. So that's a pretty big chunk of change. And as you said, it wasn't really well received. Yeah,
1: got to start somewhere.
0: But it was based on his experiences at Beaudoin and was met with somewhat positive reviews, just wasn't a very big commercial success and I did read that he burned, reportedly burned, the unsold copies. Ugh. I did find one online. It looks like it's selling for more than most of his other novels because it is such a rarity. There is only you know select out there, if any, at this point. It's but,
1: like, uh, oh shit, it's gone. Uh,
0: but that one was selling for fifty thousand dollars.
1: It's like Poe's Man- Man- Mansfield. Poe po had a, a – his first published piece of work was under a pen name and didn't sell well, and there's like 10 copies out there, and I I, I think man still wrong. I'm not going to Google it. But just like that, it's – it's a, a, the rarity of it, the, the scarcity of it makes it valuable. But moving on from that, so uh, also, side note, um, doing a lot of the, the research for this, there's a lot of bits in his life that are pretty – Significantly highlighted, uh, but in a lot of the bios and biographical essays and whatnot, it doesn't seem to mention what he was doing in 1830. And I had to go back uh, to some other research that we'd done for the Captain White murder, because remember, he was reporting on that.
0: Oh, yes. And he would have been 26 at that point. So Mm -hmm. or 25, actually. Imagine 25 year old writer. Romantic writer Uh living in Salem. Yep. And this man, prominent merchant, gets offed gruesomely.
1: And there's the murder trial, and Daniel Webster comes up, and the whole nine. So he was working for the Salem News uh, at that point.
0: Also in 1830, he published a short story called The Hollow of the Three Hills in the Salem Gazette, which also is the Salem News. Yes. Precursor to the Salem News.
1: The Hollow of the Three Hills.
0: Did you read this one? No. I skimmed this one.
1: It sounds...
0: It's, I believe it would be considered his first mention of a witch. Dude loved to write about witches. That... Like, and I get it with his ancestor being involved in the trials, but damn. It's
1: a little, little self, I don't want to say self-loathing, but like... Oh, for sure. Yeah. A, a bit. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Also, I guess it is kind of like a flashy topic, right? It's exciting. Who doesn't want to read about witches? Mm -hmm. But basically, this woman leaves her home, leaves her family. She's feeling disenchanted, and she seeks out this old crone of an actual witch and the witch takes her on like a vision quest and shows her three visions. And it's kind of, I don't know, his writing is so, I don't know what the right word is. Difficult,
1: weird, I, unique. I believe the term you're looking for is
0: 19th century.
1: Uh, 19th century, dark romanticism.
0: So it can be a little difficult at times to really understand the literal meaning because he always weaves in so many Underlying meanings. So I'm pretty sure the woman like dies at the end, but. A little left
1: up to interpretation.
0: I think so. But a short story. So he's, as much as he is known for his big novels that will come later, he is also a prolific short story writer. It's during these early years that he is publishing quite extensively in newspapers, magazines. Unfortunately, this didn't really bring him a lot of money or fame either. But he's just kind of like trekking along. He's
1: getting it out there.
0: And he hasn't given up yet. So I think that speaks to his uh, determination. Yeah. We get another tale of witchcraft in 1835 in the New England Magazine, a short story called Young Goodman Brown. Ah, uh,
1: yes. Sort of, I think that's probably one of his more famous short stories.
0: Yes. It follows a young Puritan man, Goodman Brown who ventures into the woods and comes upon a group of people attending a, quote, witch's Sabbath.
1: And, of course, that's young Mr. Brown.
0: Yes, Goodman. Yeah. Right, right. I just assumed that by this point they would know what that
1: means. I I sometimes forget, so I just, I always like to write. And we, we hear Goody, yeah. good wife, more often than we hear that's Goodman. That's why I was excited. It was yeah. Goodman. Yeah. I, I think for probably years I was like, oh, Goodman, as in, like, that was his name. And then I was like, oh. No,
0: I kind of like it because usually people just say goody about a woman and they just leave it at that. So so in this witch's Sabbath that he becomes privy to, he sees prominent members of his community as well as his wife, Faith.
1: The allegories there.
0: They all disappear. He returns home having, quote, lost faith in goodness and piety.
1: When you get to peek behind the mask... Those who you hold in higher esteem fall from grace.
0: He also did a short stint as editor for the American magazine of useful and entertaining knowledge in Boston. And I just want to throw in here that his sister Elizabeth aided him in this endeavor.
1: Unpublished and uncredited, I assume? Of course. Of course.
0: (laughs) Much like his wife later on. Mm -hmm. But if we fast forward... A couple years to 1838, he publishes Twice Told Tales, a collection of 18 short stories, and I'd say probably his most well-known collection to date.
1: By, by, by far, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's just a collection of short stories that he'd been uh, publishing and sort of republished and, and gotten out there, um, full of full of strange tales, twice told tales. <laughs> so I think that's probably his first major publication i mean i guess
0: major success
1: yeah yeah but it's still nothing compared to his first success but i'd say that's his first major publication
0: again just plugging along yeah yeah the following year in 1839 nathaniel hawthorne proposed to sophia peabody
1: uh so sophia peabody uh she's one of the peabody sisters who will be doing a whole episode
0: yeah we are not going to dive crazy into her life right now yeah
1: Uh, But suffice to say, uh, the Grimshaw house uh, in Salem on Charter Street next to the Charter Street bearing point was the home of the Peabody sisters. And it's actually initially Hawthorne is kind of flirting with the uh, elder sister. Yes, Elizabeth. Yeah. Uh, And then she introduces him to her sister. And uh, I think this is one of my favorite sort of uh, bits about his life. I guess she'd been ill. Uh, suffering migraines, sort of somewhat bedridden. Oh, she
0: was actually ill for most of her life. Yeah. On and off, yep.
1: Um, But it seems to be that after meeting him, most of her ailments just sort of clear up.
0: Love is the greatest medicine. Right?
1: It's like, it's a little sickening. But for someone who is like mostly bedridden, she meets this guy, falls madly in love, and is fine.
0: I don't, I think that's like... An exaggeration for sure. She was ill on and off. Like I think, you know, someone who catches infections, colds quite frequently, as you said, migraines. I read that her father was a dentist and it's very likely that he prescribed her, uh, questionable things when she was younger
1: probably mercury yeah yeah
0: yeah, to help with like teething as an infant so very good chance that some of those chemicals did a number on her body and absolutely you know showed later on in life but yeah so he's a he's at first after her sister Mm. elizabeth and elizabeth had said to sophia he's handsomer than lord byron which
1: is like a statement
0: and she insisted that Sophia come down and meet him. You you must meet this man. She responded with Well, if he has come once, he will come again.
1: Ho, ho, ho. Which I just love. Right. He's like, I don't have to go. He'll come back. He'll come running back if he likes me.
0: Let me know if he if he returns.
1: I love it. Handsomer than Lord Byron, though.
0: Playing hard to
1: get. Who is like sort of wildly considered to be you know, it's Lord Byron. But anyway,
0: I need to see this. He is kind of cute.
1: What, Hawthorne or no, Byron? No, Lord
0: Byron. <laughs> <laughs> wow.
1: <laughs> That's not bad. You're like, "Oh, I see why Mary Shelley." Now. Um, I
0: love all these old historical characters. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what goes on in your head sometimes? Anyway, they secretly get engaged. And are soon to be married in 1840.
0: That's quite a long engagement for back then. Yeah. And they were a little bit older.
1: Yeah, she's uh, six years younger than him. Four. Four, sorry. Uh, She's, oh yeah, 1809. 1808. I can, I'm not looking at it. I can't count. Uh,
0: You say he married her in 1840?
1: Oh, 42. Sorry.
0: So they get engaged and... During this time, Hawthorne seems to be bouncing around once again. He worked briefly as a measurer at the Boston Customs House and published a little bit here and there. And then in 1841, he went over to Brook Farm Community.
1: A transcendentalist utopian community.
0: So remember the story I shared probably very early in the podcast about how I was in an English 101 class, and you know how they just give you ridiculous off the wall prompts, and you just got to produce some, it's just English 101, Mm -hmm. right? And I had written, I think the prompt was write like a mystery or something like that. And I had written this horrible tale about being in Salem, Massachusetts, and waking, like having the city wake up to this brutal murder of several women, like found hanging from a tree. Well, Unfortunately, that's lost on my old computer. Also on that old computer was an entire term paper dedicated to Hawthorne and his time at Brook Farm. Oh, really? Believe it or not. It's
1: come full circle.
0: I didn't even know what transcendentalism meant back then. <laughs> I can't, like, I look back on I don't that. even
1: know what transcendentalism means
0: to I them. brought with me two definitions for today oh, to let- try to make it easier for our <laughs> listeners. But yeah, what a bizarre, I think the... The class, you had to pick an author and write like a biographical sketch on them. And it was a decent sized paper. And I decided to pick Hawthorne because my dad was living in Salem. Mm -hmm. And my professor suggested, you know, why don't you focus on this part of his life? Because it's seldom touched and there's so much more to it. uh, Or there's so much more to his life in general. You got to kind of narrow it down. I don't remember any of the paper, so sorry. It's not going to help today. (laughs) But uh, this is like a somewhat significant time in his life, although it is short. The Brook Farm community was, as you said, a transcendentalist uh, haven. It was basically an experimental utopian commune located out in West Roxbury on a 174 acre plot of land. The farm hosted many famous people. I mean, now famous. I don't know exactly where their status was at that point, but they were they were running in the same circles, that's mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, people like Charles Dana, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Bronson Alcott, which is yep. uh, Louisa, Louisa May. May's father, um, Margaret Fuller, Theodore Parker, and Elizabeth Peabody.
1: Ah, oh, the elder sister.
0: Mm-hmm. According to the articles of agreement, quote, Brook Farm was to combine the thinker and the worker to guarantee the greatest mental freedom and to prepare a society of liberal cultivated persons whose relations with each other would permit a more wholesome and simpler life than could be led amid the pressure of comedi- competitive institutions. So basically, people living in harmony.
1: Bunch of socialists.
0: A bunch of socialists. <laughs>
1: Just but it, trying it, it,
0: to live in peace.
1: But it was I uh, do you want to give it a definition.
0: Yeah, transcendentalism. Yeah. Um, basically, it's the idea of transcending, embracing idealism and nature while rejecting materialism. My favorite quote was from uh, UShistory.org. Transcendentalism is a very formal word that describes a very simple idea. People, men and women equally, have knowledge about themselves and the world around them that transcends or goes beyond what they can see, hear, taste, touch, or feel. Henry David Thoreau and Emerson were figureheads in the movement.
1: Involves a lot of lakes and walking and cabins, <laughs> but it's 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 an interesting uh, concept, and I, I've always appreciated its movement in sort of the undercurrent of American history. Um, it's definitely sort of like an independent, liberal, free-thinking, um, but also community-driven.
0: And sustainability-driven? Yeah. I don't know if they necessarily...
1: No, that's that's the word we'd use today. If yeah. they, yeah? And everyone's equal, everyone works together, everyone's opinion matters, every, everything is linked, everything, you know, we succeed together, we fail together. It's, it's a very uh, progressive concept.
0: But Hawthorne's only there for about six months and would later give some not so rosy recountings of his experiences. Yeah, I think he
1: sort of fell out with the transcendentalism ideology.
0: In uh, uh, in the Boothdale romance. So yeah. he does publish a book later on, several years later, about kind of being disenchanted with
1: uh, his time at the farm. And it's soon after that. I say soon. Where are we? 1840. Yeah. Uh. Soon after that, just after his 38th birthday, where he marries the love of his one and the loves of his life, the loves, <laughs> the love of his life, uh, Sophia Peabody,
0: on July 9th, 1842, in a bookstore located at 13 West Street, Boston. I where, thought that was so cute.
1: <laughs> where else, right? A bookstore. Um. It's almost immediately that they move to the old manse in Concord. Uh, So that is a historical building. You can go and see that as well. You can go to Concord. You can tour that. Uh, I have a friend who says it is very haunted. Ooh. uh, And you will always see uh, something there. The the old man's is like his favorite haunted, haunted, haunted place. That's cool. So um, if you're in Concord, you, you can check that out.
0: They stayed there for about three years, and they had a very loving relationship. He wrote to his sister shortly after their arrival we are as happy as people can be without making themselves ridiculous and might even be happier. But as a matter of taste, we choose to stop short at this point. <laughs> so That's, cute. Mm,
1: little little sounds like <laughs> like PDA, right? You're like, yeah. "Oh, we could just be all over each other." But for the sake of public we're, uh-huh. we're not.
0: We um, won't lose our heads.
1: Yeah. He called her his dove, which I always thought was kind of cute. And uh, she regards him just as highly. Oh, certainly. Yeah.
0: On their first wedding anniversary, he wrote to Sophia, We were never so happy as now, never such wide capacity for happiness, yet overflowing with all that the day and every moment brings us. Methinks this birthday of our married life is like a cape, which we have now doubled and find a more infinite ocean of love stretching out before us.
1: <coughs> no. So okay. sweet. Imagine, like, being Imagine married. Imagine
0: to- these, getting these love notes. Yeah,
1: yeah. And, of course, they're letters a lot yeah. of times. Like, a lot of what we have, uh, the records, is, is letters because, well, that's correspondence. You Today, you'd be like, oh, let's dig through someone's text messages. Right. <laughs> and you're not going to find... Um, you're not going to find that.
0: <laughs>
1: the, the underlying concept might be the same, but the heartfelt expression is probably a little different.
0: I'm sure it is in most of our cases. Mm-hmm. They went on to have three children, Una in 1844, son Julian was born in 1846, and Rose in 1851.
1: Uh, some quotes about his kids. (laughs) Did you see those? Hit me. So he writes of his first kid, Una, first kid, uh, first child, whatever. I find it a very sober and serious kind of happiness that springs from the birth of a child. There is no escaping it any longer. I have business on earth now and must look about it, and must look about me for the means of doing it, which is very cute.
0: I do remember the one about Julian. It's really
1: funny. <laughs> okay. So the next one, the first one I think is great. He's like, I have a child and like life has meaning. Like I need to build this world for that child. And the next one, and this is, this is so, uh, very, uh, first, second, third kid here, right? The second one, <laughs> he's writing to his, his sister, a small,
0: I had to look up what this word was. So funny. Can you say the word?
1: Yes. As long as I don't laugh. Every time I look at it, it's it's hilarious. A small troglodyte made his appearance here at 10 minutes minutes to 6 o'clock this morning who claimed to be your nephew.
0: Who claimed to be your nephew. That's my favorite part of it all. So good. A small
1: troglodyte who claimed to be your nephew. That's this. The first kid is, my life has meaning. The second kid is, what the fuck's this thing? And then the third kid, he writes, she was his autumnal flower. Ah, rose. So that's it. She's The first one, too. Oh, yeah. I have a third one. She's great.
0: It's cute, though. It is. Flower. Better yeah. than a caveman.
1: But it's very like, oh, here's the first one. Oh, the second one is like, oh, the third one, she's beautiful. She's great. She's she's here. She's fine. It's The the appreciation is, is very, um, very funny.
0: The parallels to today's yeah. families yeah. are evident. So as you said, they had moved to Concord, Mass. After they got married, mm-hmm. it was here that they were living amongst, again, very prolific authors like Emerson, Thoreau, Margaret Fuller, Bronson Alcott. The only way I can describe it is like it's a literary party. Like everyone's hanging out, exchanging ideas. They still are. Oh, you mean like the ghosts in the house? That's that's authors' row. Yeah. Oh, I thought you meant like the ghosts in oh, the old man. Like yeah, sure, probably but that yeah, too. Their final resting places are also there, but yeah. we'll get to that at the yeah. end. It's in 1845 that he returned to Salem.
1: He gets a job. He's he's working.
0: As a surveyor at the customs house in town.
1: And that's the one on the wharf.
0: The one that's like big, bold. Gold,
1: eagle, water.
0: Columns, big steps.
1: Yeah. so It he's,
0: sits just across from Derby Wharf.
1: So he does hold a job and a position there. Um, but it's a lot during this time uh, that he doesn't, or in the past few years, he hadn't been writing a lot. Um
0: he had published Moses from an Old Mance about his, uh, regarding his time in Concord. Seemed some minimal success. Yeah.
1: Um, but he doesn't like working in the customs house. He, he wrote to Longfellow saying that he keeps trying to write. Well, read it. I am trying to resume my pen. Whenever I sit alone or walk alone, I find myself dreaming about stories as of old. But these forenoons in the customs house undo all that the afternoons and evenings have done.
0: Sounds like your standard nine to five. Literally, right? <laughs> I
1: I re, I love. Uh, I've seen that before. I love that he's like, you know, when I get home, I'm full of ideas, and it's like, I can go to work, and it just drains you.
0: The honesty there, yeah, and the relatability,
1: right? Hundred and fifty years ago,
0: and I think he just held some resentment being back in Salem. Dude does not like Salem. He I know. really doesn't.
1: I know. Which I we think, don't like him either.
0: I think part of it is the fact that, you know, he was born into Salem's most prosperous time and he did witness the decline. And then also, of course, his family ties and being and being directly linked to one of the town's most horrid atrocities. And
1: Especially you, uh, probably going into the transcendentalist community and having that...
0: Stain.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And you got to think, you know, it's just his great-great-grandfather. That's not that far back.
1: Right? So it's soon after that that he loses his job.
0: So he held it for about three years. Yeah.
1: And then we have an election. uh, and Well, he
0: loses the job because of the election. Yeah, yeah.
1: So we have, so Zachary Taylor, President Zachary Taylor, wins the election. And, you know, with a new political shift, uh, people lose jobs. And, which is actually a good thing in this case.
0: Because he goes on to produce the Scarlet Letter.
1: So um, we're going to talk about Scarlet Letter next week?
0: Yes. So now we can tell them that what we're doing. Yes. So next week we have a fun episode where we're going to be talking about the Scarlet Letter and the House of Seven Gables, the House of the Seven Gables, in depth. Mm-hmm. So I'm taking Scarlet Letter Jeffrey's got House of Seven Gables, and we'll kind of really dive deep mm-hmm. into the themes, the connections to Salem, um,
1: and all that stuff.
0: And all that stuff next week.
1: Yeah, and also, so that's going to include the customs house and how those are important. The customs house being the writing, the customs house, which is a right. preamble, and the
0: scarlet. and also the fact that it's like, you know, still standing. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can tie him directly to the physical building as well.
1: But he publishes The Scarlet Letter, um, which is sort of uh, wildly regarded as America's first mass-produced books in the country. It
0: was an instant bestseller, and its fame would long... Exceed Hawthorne's life. Screen adaptations started in 1908 and go all the way to modern day with an Easy A.
1: I love that movie. I
0: know. The first time we talked about the Scarlet Letter, I asked you if you had seen the like the movie rendition, and your response was, "I've seen Easy A." <laughs>
1: <laughs> right? Um, I, th- I think it's a, it's a very good modern, although it might be not quite as it's God.
0: At least 15 years old. Yeah.
1: So it's not as modern as modern, but it's a modern... It's
0: modern to us. Yeah,
1: yeah. But he does real well. That's that's his first big, big success.
0: And it's still being read in English classes all over the country. Perhaps the world. I wonder if they read The Crucible in other parts of the world. If you're listening...
1: Let us know. But
0: yeah, this is basically him making it. He's famous. And first thing he does is get out of Salem.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh... He takes that $1,500, he bounces.
0: He moves to the Berkshires, uh, a mountain range in Western Mass.
1: A small town called Lenox. And I think we have some listeners who are from there. I I don't know if it's that exact town, but it's the next town over.
0: I think it's the next town over where Herman Melville was living at the time. So during this time in Hawthorne's life, not only is he writing The House of Seven Gables uh, while he's staying in Lenox, but he also shared a friendship with Herman Melville, who lived in the neighboring town of Pittsfield. So we, is that the one you were thinking of? Pits- uh, yeah, Pittsfield? yeah, I think they
1: live in Pittsfield. Yeah, uh, I can't remember off the top of my head. It, it's basically the last town in Massachusetts.
0: Before you hit like New York? Yeah,
1: yeah but it, it is the last town. Uh, so they lived as, as far from Boston and still be in Massachusetts as, as you can get. Um, middle of the woods, middle of Berkshires. So it's, it's out there that he, that he meets uh, Herman Melville, who is the author of Moby Dick. Uh, the inscription, that's not the right word, dedication of Moby Dick is to Nathaniel Hawthorne. We took uh, last year the uh, Salem Night Tours Rainbow Stroll, mm-hmm. and uh, our tour guide, Sebastian. Uh, he's the one who uh, played the um, Affliction game with us. Uh, I didn't know any of this up until that point, is that Hawthorne and Melville uh, seem to have some sort of a relationship. And one of the things that, that Sebastian was saying is that oftentimes queer history is not in what we see, but in what's missing. Yep. Uh, the piece of the puzzle that are not there uh, because they've been intentionally um, misrepresented. Uh, And we know that Melville does have uh, some uh, queer coding in Moby Dick. I believe it's the captain, the first mate, uh, who uh, share a bunk and wake up sort of wrapped in each other's arms. And that's met with a lot of pushback uh, when it's first published. Uh, But Melville is smitten <laughs> with, with Hawthorne. Uh, he loves his writing. He gives it praise after praise. Uh, his reviews are, are, are glowing and, and, and wonderful. Um, he compares him to Shakespeare, uh, which... It's
0: quite the comparison. I, I'm
1: not sure I'd go that far, <laughs> but it's, it's pretty good. Uh, there's uh, one quote from Melville. No man can read a fine author... And relish him to his very bones while he reads, without subsequently fancying to himself some ideal image of that man in his mind. There is no man in whom humor and love are developed in the high form called genius. No such man can exist without also possessing as the indispensable complement of these. A great deep intellect which drops down in the universe like a plummet. Or love and humor are the only eyes through which such an intellect views this world the great beauty in such a mind is but the product of its strength
0: watch out sofia and
1: <laughs> there's 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 praise and it is um
0: it's not just praise it's admiration yeah, yeah. and i'm glad that you brought this up because FYI, the Rainbow Stroll is coming back to Salem this year. Uh, you will be able to hop on. Remember, it's the Salem Night Tour. They're the ones that do the Rainbow Stroll. It's a specific tour. It's not every night. I believe it's Saturday and Sundays in June, and then also by appointment throughout the rest of the summer. It was one of the most illuminating tours I've ever taken yeah. in Salem. So.
1: And uh, it was nice to – I didn't know any – and there's uh, – Melville really has it hard. <laughs> that's has it, Jeffrey. I don't. That's not what I meant to, to say. say That he's fallen hard. Uh, there's another line, or I'll read one or two more. My dear Hawthorne, the atmospheric skeptics steal into me now and make me doubtful of my sandy in writing you thus. But believe me, I am not mad, most noble Festus. But truth is ever incoherent. And when the big hearts strike together, the concussion is a little stunning. I can't stop yet. If the world was entirely made up of magicians, I'll tell you what I should do. I should have a paper mill established at the end of the house and so have an endless ribbon of foot scalps rolling upon my desk. And upon the endless ribbon, I should write a thousand, a million, a billion thoughts all under the form of a letter to you.
0: Whoa. Dude. (laughs) 19 pages front and back. <laughs> just kidding. It's a friend's reference. Yeah.
1: So. um I think it they, was 17 pages actually. They clearly had the letters go on and, and on. And um, whether there was something illicit, something inappropriate as, you know, one married man and someone else or whether it was just sheer admiration, there was a, a, a strong concept of love between the two of them. I think that is very evident.
0: He doesn't stay out that way long, though.
1: <laughs> no, he, he ends up hating it.
0: I was to say, why'd you laugh?
1: Because, like, he's such a grumpy, moody little man. He's moody about Salem. He's moody about this. And he's like, oh, I hate the bird. At first, he writes this court letter. He seems to love it. And then, like, a few years later, he's like, meh. No, this place is dumb.
0: He likes to criticize.
1: <laughs> but, yes, he doesn't stay there long.
0: He moves To West Newton, which is right near Boston, and then back to Concord, where he purchased Bronson Alcott's home, the Wayside, Mm -hmm. as it is called. So again, just moving all over the place. He never really has like a strong sense of home, I think. Maybe out of all the spots, it would be Concord.
1: Yeah, he does keep going back to Concord. Um,
0: And he only goes back to Salem when he has to. Yeah, he
1: doesn't really go back to Salem. He doesn't really go back to Maine. He doesn't really go back to Berkshires, but co- I'd say Concord.
0: That's like the closest we can mm-hmm. get him to home base.
1: It's soon after that that he writes The Life of Franklin Pierce.
0: It's a campaign biography uh, for his college friend, Franklin Pierce. Remember, mm-hmm. this is his time to shine now.
1: Yeah. So we are, he writes it in 52, and the election's in 53. Uh, so it is a run up to the campaign. Uh,
0: and Pierce wins.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he, uh, President Pierce, 14th President of the United States, who, like many of the presidents, is a meh. Meh. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Zachary Taylor was a horrible president. Pierce is fine, uh, but the review of The Life of Franklin Pierce makes Pierce out to be the sort of great, kind, charitable hero character. And uh, there was a criticism that... Uh, That would be the best work of fiction that Hawthorne ever wrote. So, you know, presidents. Mm -hmm. But it's actually kind of cool because with the election of uh, Pierce to the presidency, uh, Hawthorne's life changes a little bit.
0: He gets a special appointment as consul in Liverpool.
1: Oh, so he moves to England.
0: Quite the change.
1: Yeah. (sighs) Berkshires and... Salem, and I mean, we're we're, but it's it's not it's not England. Uh, But he holds that position for the entire entirety of Pierce's presidency. Um,
0: So four years until 1857, after which he toured Italy for a year and a half.
1: Moving back to Salem, (laughs) moving back uh, to Concord in 1860, the age of 58.
0: Before he left for Concord, though, he did produce, I'd say, arguably his last big work, The Marble Fawn.
1: Which he does uh, clearly take direct inspiration from his time in Italy from, right? I said that right?
0: I think so. I don't think so, actually, but I think they understood it
1: just fine. Okay. (laughs) Um, It's also over there that he grows his mustache.
0: Ah, that's when the stash comes yeah, in. I would yeah. I think it came in earlier.
1: Yeah, little trip to Europe, get little little scruffling and that, that little you know whatever. Sophia, uh, <laughs> hey, sweetie, or Herman, or Herman,
0: <laughs> and he kind of sees like a, a just a decline
1: in his in his health
0: in his later years. Um, not much writing. I Me mean, tries, but it's lacking inspiration
1: yeah so he moves back he's done with his time and his his life is is on a on a decline he does take ill and um unfortunately passes away
0: I don't know how accurate this is but i saw somewhere that he started compulsively writing the number 64 on scraps of paper i'd never okay i didn't i didn't, i thought it sounded like too outrageous and almost like history is 2020 like some we know he dies in 1864 so like we're transposing that on his final okay. years but
1: also self-fulfilling prophecies are a thing true right if he just kept writing then he died and he's like well that's it now i need to go because uh,
0: oh because i wrote on these scraps of paper 64 and i must abide by my own
1: he's scribblings yeah <laughs> i mean
0: maybe maybe but yeah, was just something I came across that I thought, oh, that's so eerie. That's totally something someone would write like, you know, later on down the line. <laughs> like he was this tortured author was tormented by all of his dark themes and
1: his morbid romantic, whatever,
0: complaining. Yeah.
1: <laughs> the he customs house and the cobwebs. <laughs> yeah. God, I hate him. I don't. But like. You've been going to custom. You're like, you had to it's work. It's gorgeous. You were forced to work here. But Stop. again,
0: I think a lot of his, I think a lot of his bitterness comes from the fact that he was born into the beautiful, prosperous, bustling Salem. Mm-hmm. And when he gets that job at the customs house, it's not that anymore. Not no, even close. No. It's, it's, it's true. So who knows? That, that's just my speculation. But yeah, he, uh, he passes away in his sleep. Um, not amongst his family, but amongst his friend, Franklin Pierce. Which
1: I think is cute's not the right word, but quaint.
0: At least, you know, he had someone there. Yeah. And of all the people he could have had, at least it was his, a long-lasting friend. His
1: lifelong, probably his oldest friend. Uh, they'd known each other for, for 45 years. Yeah,
0: remember they were the ones sneaking liquor in with their uh, yeah. their
1: lamps. So Pierce finds him. Yeah. Um, he sends a telegram to Elizabeth. sorry, to Sophia's sister, Elizabeth, which uh, is the right way to do it, and then her sister can tell her instead of just having it come through on a, on a piece of paper. So that was thoughtful.
0: Sophia wrote to her friend, My darling has gone over that sapphire sea, and these grand soft waves are messages from his eternal rest. I can't imagine the heartbreak she would have felt. And they weren't even married that long.
1: 20 years?
0: I guess that is a long time, especially in today's world. But,
1: but they were separated ah. you know, for centuries.
0: Ah, I see what <laughs> you did there. <laughs> that was
1: so bad. Yeah, so uh, she passes away in England.
0: Yes, so she had moved the family to England after his death.
1: Yeah. So clearly, that made a that time there, she must have uh, made an impression on her. And um,
0: she died in 1871 from typhoid pneumonia.
1: It was six years later, and uh, she was buried in England. It was separated by an ocean for 147 years
0: until the early 2000s when her remains were moved to concord massachusetts and she was she and her daughter una Una, who died at 33 they were laid to rest alongside nathaniel in a little section called authors Ridge.
1: they are in good company
0: yes alongside emerson and thoreau alcott yes louisa
1: but that just about wraps
0: up his life Remember, this was a very brief overview. Yeah. The man published like nine novels and dozens and dozens and dozens of short stories throughout his uh, life. So,
1: But as we wrap it up, I want to end with a quick ghost story. Ooh, pray tell. So this is a ghost story of Hawthorne's.
0: Something that he had experienced.
1: Yes. So this is a paranormal experience that he experienced. And he had uh, reiterated this several times. And in his time in England, uh, he wrote it down for the family he was staying with. Because they won the record of it. And they kept that publication for years. And then it was revealed that there's this was Hawthorne's story. So effectively, um, it has to do with a gentleman by the name of Reverend Harris. So it's at, when he's living in Boston. And he used to spend time at the Boston Athenaeum. And he would see this old sort of quirky reverend. Um, and you probably all know, we all know like an old quirky person. You see them on the street like, oh, there's that guy, whatever the case may be. And every time he went to the Anthenaeum, there would be Reverend Harris sitting in his chair reading his newspaper. And he goes just like any other day and sees Reverend Harris reading his newspaper. And that evening he talks to a friend of his and I go, to do hear the news? Old Reverend Harris passed away. Hawthorne's like, oh, don't be foolish. I saw the man earlier today at the Athenaeum. Like, you couldn't have. He died last night. And Hawthorne's like, well, that's just ridiculous. And he goes to the Athenaeum the next day and sees none other than... He
0: saw him the next day.
1: sees Reverend Harris reading the newspaper that would have contained his obituary.
0: You're telling what?
1: And Hawthorne's like, this is ridiculous. There's no way this man's... That he's like I saw and he goes back to his friend. He's like I saw him and he's like no no. He checked the obituaries. He saw Reverend Harris. He saw the name in the newspaper, and for months and months and months afterwards, Hawthorne recounted seeing old Reverend Harris sitting in his chair in the Boston Athenaeum. He never recounted seeing the old man enter or seeing the old man leave, but oftentimes he was sitting there. He'd look up and. There'd be the old man sitting in his chair reading his paper.
0: Ugh, I just got chills. <laughs>
1: so that is, I thought it
0: was going to be like one and done, not well, continuously. You saw him over
1: and over and over.
0: Zach Baggins would be
1: freaking out, right? I, <laughs> I think he reported that he oftentimes thought that he should go over and question mm-hmm. the spirit, but then he'd like think to himself, "What would everyone think
0: if I'm just talking if to I'm myself?" <laughs> Exactly. I think getting knowledge from a ghost would be more significant, but that's my own opinion. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's neat. So if you find yourself in the Boston Anthenaeum, look for a Reverend Harris.
1: Sitting in a chair, reading his newspaper.
0: All right, guys, that pretty much wraps us up for the day. Thank you so much for tuning in. Remember to like, subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on all the socials. We are at Salem the Pod and send us an email at hello at salemthepodcast.com.
1: And if you come to Salem, check us out on tour. book a tour with me Better than fiction Tours, Salem, or with Sarah at Bewitch Tours. But with that, thanks for listening. See you later.